Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States. Episode 4.2, Pontiac's Rebellion. The period from April 19th through May 9th, 1763, would see a series of events occur that would spark the beginnings of a wide-scale Indian revolt. Beginning with the burning of Shamakin and then the siege of Fort Detroit, the colonies were suddenly plunged into Pontiac's Rebellion. This week, we are going to spend our time looking at that first year of fighting during the Rebellion. The first real field of action during the Rebellion, unsurprisingly, would come from Detroit. While the first real blow would come in the Wyoming Valley of Pennsylvania, there was such wide-scale devastation there that it took a minute for there to be any meaningful reprisal. However, when we left off last week, and therefore where we are going to pick up this week, we were at Fort Detroit. When we had last left off, recall that Pontiac and his warriors had, after being denied access to Fort Detroit, regrouped and moved through the British settlements right outside of the fort. Besides burning the towns, anybody who did not get into the relative safety of the fort found themselves suddenly in mortal danger with the Indians moving through and killing all the English settlers that they could find. At that point, they moved onto the fort itself. The British had entrenched inside the walls, with Pontiac and company laying siege to the fort. This siege was extremely effective. Not only did the Indians continue to induce terror on anyone trying to get supplies to the beleaguered fort, but they prevented all but a single attempt at reprovisioning. Beginning almost immediately after the siege, you see the numbers of those involved begin to quickly rise. Fred Anderson suggests in his book, The Crucible of War, a book that I used heavily throughout our series on the French and Indian War, that this may have been prearranged. There is some evidence of this, as throughout May there were several attacks throughout the region by tribes against smaller British garrisons. These forts ranged from modern-day Sandusky, Ohio, to Fort Wayne, Indiana, and beyond. Of course, this isn't that stunning of a revelation either, considering that war belts had been passed around for a few years now. For a while, it appeared that the question of a war had shifted away from if and towards when. Though, arguably, even if a prearrangement was not in place there were a lot of very disgruntled tribes that were more than happy to join in the fray and take up arms against the British. Either way, the various tribes had an overwhelming initial amount of success against the British forces. What followed over the coming weeks and months was an expansion of the conflict through the Great Lakes region and throughout the entire Ohio Valley. As news spread about what had happened near Detroit, many tribes decided that they wanted in on the action. They would, as I mentioned a moment ago, move against those smaller garrisons throughout the region, kill a good number of those inhabiting said forts, and then send a handful of British back to Detroit to serve as hostages. Back in Pennsylvania, by the end of June, settlements along Forbes Road were being regularly attacked by Delaware and Shawnee tribes effectively severing communication between Fort Pitt, the replacement for Fort Duquesne, and the rest of Pennsylvania. On June 24, 1763, Delaware emissaries approached Fort Pitt 
let them know how dire the situation was, and let them know that if they did not all want to die terrible deaths, this was probably the time to evacuate. None of this was exactly a surprise to Captain Simon Euchre, who was well aware that the fort was facing a very real risk. Those attacks along Forbes Road made the situation worse, and meant that Euchre was now also having to care for several hundred refugees. However, if you are sitting there thinking that Euchre was about to give up the hard-won Fort Pitt, you would be incorrect. Euchre was determined to hold out with the thought that he had enough provisions to last until he could be bailed out. It is here that we find one of the single most controversial moments of the war, and really the thing that is most often recalled regarding Pontiac's rebellion in the popular memory. Well, Euchre was not planning to evacuate Fort Pitt, that did not change the fact that he was dealing with a few critical problems. Among those problems is that he was having to deal with a smallpox outbreak that was moving through the fort. When Euchre let the emissaries know that he would not abandon the fort, he sent them on their way with a handful of provisions to get them back home. Among those provisions were two blankets and a handkerchief, that had come from the fort's smallpox ward. Now, lest we sit around thinking that the British did not know what they were doing, I want to read you a quote from Captain William Trent, who was there with Euchre at the meeting between the British and the Delaware agents. Trent stated that, Out of our regard to them, we gave them two blankets and a handkerchief out of the smallpox hospital. I hope it has the desired effect. This pretty clearly lays out that the British had a plan in mind by giving those blankets away. As this is something that is so well known, I want to spend a little extra time looking at the event. Specifically, I want to examine two key points. The first is I want to look at the actual effect of the attempt at biological warfare. Second, I want to look at exactly who is complicit in the incident. Jeffrey Amherst is so often identified as being the culprit in the spreading of smallpox blankets. However, at this point, you may have noticed that I have not yet mentioned his name in this episode. As to the first of those questions, the effectiveness of the attack, what do we know? We know that Pennsylvania tribes were hit hard with a smallpox epidemic during the second half of 1763, and that it would continue to be a problem for the Indians moving into 1764 and right on into 1765. However, this cannot offer us conclusive proof that the action of giving over smallpox-infected blankets had the intended effect. Smallpox had been a significant problem for humanity for the last 12,000 years, right until its eradication in the 1980s. Well, nobody in 1763 knew that a virus caused it, as they did not know what a virus was. It did not take an epidemiologist for people to know that they were dealing with a highly contagious disease that was spread person to person. When somebody had smallpox, they were ordered to quarantine while the disease ran its course. Running its course could range from survival with scarring, possible blindness, and in roughly 30% of the cases, death. Now we are going to be talking more about smallpox later this season, especially when it comes to the American Revolution and how George Washington viewed inoculation. However, for today, just know that people were well aware of how smallpox spread 
and took due precautions because of it. We also know that in 1763 there was an outbreak of smallpox going on. Thomas Jefferson had to cancel a trip to Williamsburg that year because of an active outbreak within the city. We likewise are now well aware that those refugees from along Forbes Road seeking shelter within Fort Pitt were also dealing with the disease. There is no question, therefore, that prior to any blankets being given to the Indian emissaries, there was an ongoing outbreak of the illness. This opens up at least the possibility that the emergence of smallpox in the Pennsylvania Indian population came from their attacks on the frontier settlements, where the colonists in those towns were already infected. Critically, this should not be taken as evidence either to suggest that the blankets from Fort Pitt did or did not lead to the spread of the disease, but that it is inconclusive as to what their effect was. The blankets absolutely may have been a disease vector. However, there were many other places where smallpox could have been contracted by Indian tribes during 1763 as well. This brings us to our second question. Specifically, what was the culpability of Amherst in all of this? I'll preface this by saying that, depending on what I've read, there seems to be a pretty wide range of opinions on what Amherst knew. However, the general sense that I got is that Amherst probably did not explicitly know that Euchre was going to distribute smallpox-infected blankets at Fort Pitt in late June 1763. Nowhere is there any record that shows a direct order from Amherst, or a clear shift in British policy. There is an invoice for the blankets and a handkerchief that openly states that the objects were taken from the smallpox hospital and given to the Indians. However, the approval for payment on that invoice was not signed by Amherst, but instead by Thomas Gage. There remains no direct evidence that Amherst knew anything about the scheme at this point at all. So. Does that mean we can exonerate Amherst from his responsibility in this situation? No, not quite. The problem is that, although he likely did not give the explicit order, Amherst almost certainly would not have objected to the blankets being distributed. In June 1763, when the blankets were being handed out to the Indians at Fort Pitt, Amherst was in New York. Letters from the early part of July between Amherst and Henry Bouquet, Amherst's leading man on the ground in Pennsylvania, sees Amherst muse about the possibility of spreading smallpox among the Indian tribes. Indeed, in a second letter, Amherst talks specifically about spreading infected blankets amongst the hostile tribes. What we therefore have is Amherst openly discussing doing the exact thing that had occurred at Fort Pitt several weeks earlier. What does this leave us with, then? Unfortunately, it leaves us with few clear answers. While Amherst often seems to carry the blame for the distribution of infected blankets to Indian tribes, there is no direct evidence that he had anything to do with it. However, his own writings indicated that Amherst wanted to do exactly that thing. He was thinking about the possibility of using smallpox as a weapon. It is simply that Euchre was slightly ahead of him in the actual implementation of such a policy. Questions of culpability aside, the effect of the blankets is likewise unknown 
despite there being a massive rise that occurred in smallpox, roughly contemporaneously with the distribution of the blankets from Fort Pitt, it is impossible to form a clear cause and effect relationship. It is possible that the blankets had their intended effect and led to a widespread outbreak of the disease during the summer of 1763. It is, however, also possible that the outbreaks were natural and not malicious in origin. Smallpox was everywhere in 1763, and the idea that a natural outbreak may have occurred, regardless of the dirty blankets, is entirely within the realm of possibility. Regardless of the effectiveness of infected blankets as a weapon, it would be impossible not to characterize the first several months of Pontiac's rebellion as being wildly successful for the Indian tribes and catastrophic for the British colonists. Throughout the spring and summer of 1763, the rebellion continued to spread as more and more tribes, tired of British policy, joined in. The situation at Fort Pitt had become dire by the end of June, when it had become clear to Euchre and company that the fort really was standing on its own. All the other surrounding forts had fallen. While Fort Pitt was a strong fortification in excellent condition, reality still states that being isolated and outnumbered while dealing with an internal smallpox outbreak is a less-than-ideal situation. Beginning in early July, the fort was under siege. Meanwhile, out to the east at Fort Detroit, that siege was dragging on as conditions continued to deteriorate. This brings us to one of the core questions, and indeed something that we have not yet mentioned. I've been talking this entire episode today about Indian victories. Forts and garrisons all through the Ohio Valley and Great Lakes were falling like dominoes. At both Fort Detroit and Fort Pitt, the British were under siege from Indian forces. Settlements and towns all along the Ohio Valley had come under attack, as had towns along Forbes Road in Pennsylvania. Despite all of this, and despite the fact that we are now a full two months past the outbreak of the war, not once have I mentioned anything about a British response. Sure, the British had tried their hands at biological warfare. However, two infected blankets and a handkerchief do not exactly amount to a defense. The problem is that, even after years of warning signs, the leadership was largely caught flat-footed. Amherst had sent men south to fight under the command of Henry Bouquet. However, Amherst had completely failed to understand the scope of the rebellion that he was now fighting. The army that Amherst had therefore sent to Bouquet was horribly inadequate. Well, we can debate if a dangerous amount of bravado and false confidence over his ability to control Indian affairs led to his inadequate response. The fact is that those topics that we discussed last time were of real concern to Amherst. His army was stretched extremely thin. While the fall of Canada was a great boon to him personally, it also meant that his already diminished army was now busy with the task of holding on to Canada. The result was that the army that Amherst sent south to Pennsylvania was wholly incapable of responding to the growing crisis. Amherst, who was distracted by this point by his own desires to return home to England, did not fully grasp the reality that the British had completely lost control of the North American interior 
until that July. The real issue, however, is that even had Amherst not been caught completely flat-footed, it is not like he had the troops necessary to mount a meaningful defense anyway. Further reinforcement from Britain was unlikely. This meant that the only real option for Amherst was the use of provincial troops, an idea that he absolutely despised. As we already know from our last series on the French and Indian War, and really our last hundred or so episodes of this podcast, colonial assemblies were frustratingly slow to respond, if they responded at all. Considering that it was now July, and that he lacked the necessary manpower at the moment, it was clear that the British response would not be coming until the following summer. Unsurprisingly, Amherst's plans for the following year revolved around the recently concluded Cherokee War. The lessons from that war showed that if the British could cut off the Indians' ability to conduct war, primarily by limiting weapons falling into their hands, they would be able to effectively remove the ability of the native people to fight back. What Amherst proposed, therefore, was a three-pronged attack. The first phase was diplomatic rather than militaristic. It depended on William Johnson convincing the Iroquois Confederacy to isolate the Senecas. This would give the benefit of keeping the Greater Iroquois Confederacy from joining the war effort while cutting off their warring faction. Second, Amherst planned to send an army west, moving from Fort Niagara towards Detroit, putting down the rebellion as it went. A second force made up of an army from Pennsylvania and Virginia would then move from Fort Pitt into the Ohio country and get control over that theater of the war. Among the most serious problems with this plan, however, is that Amherst needed Fort Pitt, Fort Niagara, and Fort Detroit to hold out for an entire year in order for his plan to be possible. Those plans mentioned above, except for William Johnson's diplomatic mission, were designed for 1764. This meant that the more pressing issue for Amherst was assuring that these three critical locations could hold out long enough for an offensive the following year. To facilitate this, Amherst sent troops to these forts to get control over the situation. In Pennsylvania, it was Henry Bouquet leading the mission. Unfortunately, progress was considerably slowed by the difficult travel through western Pennsylvania and the oppressive heat. Pennsylvania politics was also a problem, as the Pennsylvania Assembly was the first to clarify that they did not intend to provide troops for an offensive mission. The provincials would rather defend forts along the Susquehanna River. Unsurprisingly, Bouquet was not amused by this response. Regardless of the reinforcements, however, Bouquet had his marching orders and continued to move towards Fort Pitt with some 400 men at his disposal. And, just a note, it was on this march that Bouquet and Amherst had been musing about the potential of using the intentional spread of smallpox as a weapon. Fort Pitt was in a bad place during July 1763. The fort was being attacked from a force made up of Delawares, Mingos, Shawnee, Ottawas, and Hurons. As Bouquet was plotting west, it was pushing more and more tribes towards Fort Pitt, which at the moment was not a terribly welcome development for either side. For the British pinned up inside the fort, it was just more hostile Indians that they were going to have to address. For the Indians, 
they were having an increasingly difficult time with their own dwindling supplies. The flood of new Indians further taxed an already depleted food supply. The tribes were aware by this point that Bouquet's army was approaching and that a battle was likely coming. There was actually an attempt at this point to avoid more bloodshed by the Indians. However, Euchre was having none of it. His refusal to work towards a peace made the eventuality of a battle a certainty. Indeed, the day after Euchre rejected an Indian peace delegation, movements outside the fort and an increase in fire towards Fort Pitt made clear that a battle was imminent. After a few days of this increased fire, the first sign that something was up came on August the 1st. It was on the 1st that the Indians suddenly ceased firing and became distracted by other concerns. What are those concerns, you ask? The concern was that the Indians had become aware that Bouquet and his men were on their final approach. Rather than sit around and await Bouquet and the British arriving to bring the fight to them, the assembled tribes instead moved to a location some 20 miles southeast of the fort. Now, Bouquet had been tipped off that an ambush was likely. As a result, he was careful to travel as lightly as possible, while at the same time sending out an advance guard to protect the main bulk of his army. It was while taking a break along the stream at Bushy Run that the British finally found the ambush that they knew was waiting for them. Bouquet wasted little time in responding upon the beginning of the attack and quickly moved to reinforce that advance guard. The regiments of Scottish Highlanders were able to seize the hill that the Indians had launched their ambush from, forcing the natives to fall back into a tactic of attempting to partially surround the British forces, making use of quick movements and using trees for cover. This move by the Indians put the British at serious risk of being outflanked. As a result, the strategy for the British was one of protecting their flanks from attack. The real victory during the afternoon of that hot August day was that the ambush at Bushy Run did not prove to be a repeat performance of Braddock's destruction along the shores of the Monongahela. Sharpshooters and powerful long-range British rifles had helped hold back the worst of an Indian advance. Furthermore, and likely most critically, the British had maintained discipline. Even during retreats, Everything remained deliberate and orderly. However, although the British had survived the initial ambush, their situation moving into the nighttime hours of the 5th was not exactly desirable. Bouquet's men were still partially surrounded and had suffered a high percentage of casualties during the battle. Their supply lines were in peril. The men were exhausted and in desperate need of water. Bouquet ordered sacks of flour from the supply train to be used to create a defensive breastwork to keep the men at least somewhat sheltered. Well, nighttime had brought a temporary reprieve for Bouquet's men. He knew that the situation was far from secure. Sure, things had not collapsed into that Braddock-esque massacre. However, there was always tomorrow for that to happen. What Bouquet came up with was a plan to give the Indians exactly the opening that they were looking for. On the morning of the 6th, the Indians once again opened fire on the British position. Two companies of infantry suddenly pulled back. The effect of this was that the British line in that spot was now seriously weakened. This is exactly the opening that the Indian forces had been waiting for. If the Indians could overrun the British, they could quickly inflict a high number of casualties and win the day. 
Sure enough, the weak spot that now appeared in the British defenses were the exact thing that the Indians were looking for. Quickly, the tribes concentrated their attacks and pushed forward into that perceived weakness. The Indians' focus and movement towards this weakness meant that for the first time since the battle began, they had to emerge from their cover and well-concealed positions. This is exactly what Bouquet had been banking on. Rather than this being the beginning of the end for the British, they had just sprung their own trap. As the Indians attempted to overwhelm them, they quickly discovered that rather than the line falling apart, the retreating British had taken up positions along a hill and were now free to fire at the suddenly exposed Indians. It was now the British who made their attempt to overrun the opponent. With bayonets fixed, this is just what they did, to considerable success. The Indians who had remained up in cover suddenly found themselves pinned down by the rest of Bouquet's forces, meaning that there was little they could do to help save the situation. Recognizing that the battle was now lost, the remainder of the Indians broke and fled into the forest. The Battle of Bushy Run was over. The British had won the day in what was, in fact, a disaster for the Indians. However, victory still came at a steep cost of over a quarter of Bokeh's army, either dead or injured. From this point forward, there would be little more than some light skirmishing as Bokeh and his men limped towards Fort Pitt, arriving a few days later. The siege of the fort was at an end. The Indians now had little hope of capturing the reinforced fort by force. Furthermore, they were dealing with their own food shortages and the loss of Bushy Run finished off any meaningful hope that they could outlast the British. The combined native forces would break off their siege and retreat towards the west in an attempt to deal with their own food shortages. As Henry Bouquet marched west through Pennsylvania towards his confrontation at Bushy Run, a second mission moved towards Detroit to relieve that beleaguered fort. The man given the task of helping reinforce Fort Detroit was James Dalyell. James Dalyell was an aide-de-camp of Amherst's and was eager to prove himself upon being given the command of the Detroit Relief Expedition. The son of a baronet, he had served in North America for some time, chiefly in the area around Lake Champlain, where he had earned a reputation for being an extremely ambitious young man. Following the end of the war, he found himself invited into Amherst's military family. The plan was for Dalyell to head to Albany to raise an army. He did just that, and was able to assemble around 250 men. Among the recruits was Robert Rogers, a now legendary ranger who was himself looking to recover some of his now dimming luster. With an army in tow, Dalyell made his way towards Detroit. By July, Dalyell was on his way across Lake Ontario, on his way first to Niagara. There he was able to poach an additional 40 men before quickly continuing off to the west. Along the way, the small army passed by several other minor forts, where they could see firsthand the devastation that came in the rebellion's wake. British positions had been burnt to the ground, the bodies of the dead and charred British visible through the ashes. A few days later, with Dalyell under fire from the banks of the Detroit River that they were sailing up, he reached Detroit with some 280 men in tow. Inside the fort, sole command rested in the hands of Henry Gladwin, who had assumed control 
following the assassination of Captain Donald Campbell on July 4th, when he had been captured, killed, dismembered, and cannibalized. Knowing this, it is probably not too much of a reach to assume that Gladwin was very happy to see some friendly faces. Dalyell, upon his arrival, settled into his role as the reinforcement and helped Fort Detroit carry on throughout the winter until they could launch an attack the following spring. Right? That's what he did, right? Well, no, that is not what happened. You see, we have already mentioned that Dalyell was an ambitious guy. And really, nobody is writing stories about a group of reinforcements who garrison a frontier fort for the winter until more reinforcements arrive for an offensive the following spring or summer. It's just not that romantic of a story. For a guy who was itching to make a name for himself, being a mere reinforcement? Well, that was just not going to cut it. Dalyell wanted to flex in the biggest way possible. He wanted to be the guy that killed Pontiac, and hopefully be the one who broke the Indians' fighting spirit. Just a day after arriving to help Gladwin, Dalyell let him know that he was going to head out with nearly 250 troops and bring the fight to Pontiac directly. And this is just what happened. In the early morning hours of July 21st, he and his army marched out for battle. The problem for Dalyell is that his surprise attack was not that big of a surprise. Pontiac had become aware of the approaching British army. As a response, Pontiac sent hundreds of warriors into positions of cover, along the route to his camp. The plan for the Indians is that they would ambush the would-be attackers, and then quickly cut off the British retreat. When the Indians opened fire, they quickly did significant damage. Wounded at the outset of the battle, Dalyell had to make a snap decision to either push forward or retreat. Dalyell unfortunately took the third option, and rather than acting decisively, he hesitated. This hesitation allowed the Indian warriors to slip back into cover, where they could continue to pummel the British column. Finally, Dalyell came to his senses and realized that this was not going well, and attempted to retreat. All the meanwhile, the Indians continued to just cut them down with gunfire from their concealed positions against the very exposed British column. During the retreat, Dalyell himself was shot dead. By the time that the entire attack had ended, an attack known as the Battle of Bloody Run, 20 men were dead. Another 35 were wounded and 100 were captured. Dalyell, for his trouble, was dead, and his head was now on a spike outside of the Indian camp. To say that the battle had been a complete disaster for the British would be an understatement. Keep in mind that this is happening on July 31st. This is just six days before the Battle of Bushy Run would begin over in Pennsylvania. So these events are nearly contemporaneous with one another. After the disaster that was Bloody Run, what followed was a sort of war of attrition between the British and the Indians at Fort Detroit. For the next several months, it really became a question of who was going to run out of food first, especially with the coming cold weather. Finally, on October 15th, Pontiac determined that the siege was becoming untenable. There was increasing infighting between the Indian tribes. The French had made clear that they were not about to get involved, 
and ultimately the Indians were getting low on food with winter coming. Unable to hold out longer, Pontiac went ahead and ended the siege. Inside of Fort Detroit, this was extremely welcome news, because as it turned out, there was only two weeks' worth of flour left. Back towards Niagara, things were not going well either. It was there that a large group of Senecas went on the offensive against the Niagara garrison. Niagara was a critical fort for the British, as it proved to be a linchpin to supplies heading west in the Great Lakes region. Most importantly, losing Niagara would make resupplying Fort Detroit far more difficult. Throughout the early fall, the Seneca-led war parties took to attacking supplies moving through the region. These attacks were not minor annoyances either. These were the kind of crippling attacks that left large numbers of casualties in their wake. In fact, in terms of sheer numbers, it was Indian attacks around Niagara that would cause the most serious losses of the entire war for the British. A surprise attack at a spot known as the Devil's Hole in mid-September would see nearly 100 British deaths, including 81 soldiers. The Senecas in that same battle suffered only a single casualty. Through a series of continued attacks and skirmishes, the British would not regain anything even resembling control until after late October. Practically, this meant that the Niagara garrison, now fighting both the winter weather and trying to hold their position, could not resupply Detroit. Rather, following the siege ending, soldiers from Detroit had to travel east to Niagara to obtain much-needed relief themselves. As 1763 wound down, it is difficult to ascertain just where everything stands. Per the plan that Amherst laid out, things actually had pretty much gone to plan. Fort Pitt and Detroit were secure, and Fort Niagara was at least under nominal British control. William Johnson had a decent amount of success treating with the Iroquois. Johnson basically sold the Iroquois leadership on the idea that by entering into an alliance with the British, it would give them a chance to reassert their control over the Ohio country, something that they were still very much interested in. Following the end of the French and Indian War, the Iroquois had several tribes that had become dangerously independent from them. The Delaware under T.D.S. Gung were an example of just this. Johnson appealed to them by pointing out that this gave them a chance for a victory over these tribes and could help to consolidate their control over the region. This was enough for the Iroquois. However, William Johnson knew keenly that he had just placed a band-aid over a gunshot wound. The problem was the imperial policy being implemented by Amherst. It was his heavy-handed tactics towards the Indians that had brought everybody to the brink before plunging them over the precipice. Yet Amherst was not about to change course. For better or worse, and really for worse, he had made his mind up and he was not going to waver. Johnson knew that if there was going to be peace, it would not come with Amherst at the helm. William Johnson therefore set out, with the assistance of George Krogan, whom went to London to air his grievances in person, to bring an end to Amherst's command. In London, reactions to the news of the war, and just how bad it had become, enraged just about everybody. It took little effort to convince everybody that Amherst needed to go. 
Amherst had been itching to go back to London for a while now. The leadership in London decided that they agreed with Amherst and granted him permission to come home. Upon getting notice of the changing of the guard, Amherst wasted zero time. He quickly handed over control to Thomas Gage, hopped on a boat, and went back to London. Just like that, after so much time in North America, Jeffrey Amherst was gone. The departure of Amherst was not met with a sense of melancholy. Everybody in North America was pretty thrilled to see the guy go. Back in Fort Pitt, Euchre wrote that there was a cry of joy at the news of his departure, and that they all drank in celebration of his leaving. Upon his return to London, Amherst, much to his surprise and disappointment, would not be greeted with a hero's welcome, but rather a lot of questions regarding his actions and just how he had allowed the situation to spiral so badly out of control. Next time, we are going to pick right up in our story, with the plan being to bring the military portion of Pontiac's rebellion to a close. With the war effort now under new leadership, we will look at the course it takes and just how the rebellion will be brought to an end. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as the British attempt to regain control. <laughs>